What does intentional mean for you, Steve? I've been waiting for this one. I've heard a <laughs> lot of responses on this. And so I had to think very carefully, um, choose my words carefully. So to me, intentional means having clarity on what you want so that you can take daily action towards a purpose-driven life. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Hey everybody and welcome back. I am uh, unbelievably excited for today's episode because it is tying together my whole story from my past. It's tying together the evolution of my businesses over the years, what Arcona is doing, the evolution into CFO services. And it's meant to be educational because I'm going to be teeing up for the next 10, 15 minutes why the market of fractional executives is growing, what the implications are for business owners, why it's a good thing, but what are the uh, different ways that people can navigate the pros and cons of the different flavors of fractional executives, and then even more so the fractional CFO. And then I'm going to be interviewing two of my dear friends and also who I get to call clients, Steve Schaefer and Jimmy Fritz, who they each for a half hour are going to share their experience going through the training, but more specifically, how it's uh, their business is different working with the CFO and how the business has uh, successfully changed, what they're doing differently, how they're making decisions differently, how that's impacted their mental stress, their uh, ability to predict distributions, their ability to realize their goals, etc. So bear with me for the next 10 minutes while I'm just going to hopefully break down in a way that makes sense because th this uh, fractional executive marketplace whether it's fractional CFOs, fractional CIOs, uh, with my old business, kind of the virtual CIO, you have fractional marketing officers, uh, CMOs like Jennifer Zick, who was on the show recently, or fractional sales leaders like Gary Braun from Pivotal Advisors that was on a couple of uh, year ago or something. There's uh, fractional integrators now. There's all these different fractional executives. And the big question is, why is this a thing? And why is this a, a good thing for business owners and how to navigate this uh uh, this landscape the right way and make sure that you have the right fit if it's the right fit for you in any of those different areas. So to kind of take it from the top is why does the market of fractional executives exist? So here is what I've learned over the last 10, 15 years is that when you think about the size of uh, companies and then you have to realize that a lot of companies cannot afford the executives that they need. So if you went and Googled the, the typical salary of a CIO, CFO, CMO, um, you name it, uh, VP of sales or chief revenue officer, um, they're high ticket and it's a high price to pay for an executive that understands the entire function of a business. So for example, if you looked into it, the, that typical fraction or the typical CFO uh, of privately held companies in the US is 302 grand. And then they've got you typically you know, cash bonuses or, or equity, whatever it might be. So if you think about the size of company that needs to be how big the company needs to be in order to afford that person, it's pretty heavy and it's pretty it's pretty sizable, I should say. And a lot of business owners are trying to figure out how to make three hundred grand little and hire someone for three hundred thousand dollars. And then the other thing is, do you need that person of that caliber all the time? Typically, the answer is no. And so. And that goes for like, you know, if you Google the fractional, or I'm sorry, not fractional, 
the the typical pay of, of a chief marketing officer or a, a VP of sales. Like I said, they're all very expensive people because we know some of them, but what ends up happening is that talent gets sucked up into the larger corporations, over $50 million in, in revenue, or private equity firms where that talent, the back office can be leveraged between multiple entities in a portfolio of companies. And you know, I'm gonna uh, drop the uh, the stats again on the from the uh, uh, from the census um, where they talked about the different size of companies and where they're all at. So in the U.S. right now, and this is 10 years old, so I, I haven't seen the most recent one that came out. But for privately held companies, there are 27 million, but seven million or six million of them have employees. So we're gonna focus on that. Six million companies that are privately held in the US, they employ 120 million Americans. There are only 20,000 companies, 20,000 that are over 100 million in revenue and they employ 65 million Americans. Then there are between 5 million in revenue and 100 million revenue. There are 350,000 companies and they employ 60 million Americans. So think about that between 5 million in revenue and 100 million in revenue, there's 350,000 companies and they employ 60 million Americans. Then there are 60, I'm sorry, there are 5.6 million companies below 5 million in revenue. So there, the disproportionate amount of the companies, I think it's like 95% are below 5 million in revenue and they employ 60 million Americans as well. So if you just did some basic math, you said, okay, well, we all know that out of the 5.6 million, there's the Pareto principle where 80%, the 80-20 rule, where, but let's just take the top. Let's say it's 5 million in revenue. If it's 5 million in revenue, they're doing 10% EBITDA or cash flow maybe. Therefore, you've got 500 grand in cash flow and you're going to say, okay, well, how can that company afford an executive at all these functions at the pay that we need? And then the next question you're probably thinking is, well, they just don't hire those people. They have other people that are going to do that job for them, which is what typically happens. And that's what I went through with our family business. And I've done that in my other companies as well. And the, here's the big challenge with this. <laughs> and the people listening that really know me that I'm not a huge sports guy. I played soccer growing up. So I'm going to use a sports analogy. So I'm way out of my <laughs> element here. But the, the reality is with when I played soccer year round growing up, you can't. You, you only need the goalie a couple times but you can't not have a goalie. You need that you need that player guarding the net so when the ball goes to the net, the goalie's there to catch it. And the reality is what happens is businesses that are in the lower middle to lower market call it the underneath 30 million, people need these people, these executives at that executive level. They need the people that know how the blueprint needs to look. They're like the architect. So the person running the sales organization knows how to predict build the plan and predict the future given in sales. And there was an episode I did with Joe Trammell, who is amazing. And he had a great episode about how a CEO can hire these uh, executives that I will put a link in the show notes to. But, you know, on a, for a CFO that I'll speak to, you need the person like we talked about in last episode, someone like Pat or one of, like any CFO that understands how to view the company as a financial asset and they understand the blueprint. You, they're not someone that's asking you what you need to do because the reality is that what comes with that price tag comes with, I've done this before and I know how all the functions inside of it work and they stay up to date 
on all of the stuff going on that is rapidly changing in sales or in finance or in technology or in HR or in operations. If you think about all of the stuff that's rapidly changing, how any business owner can think that they know how all of that stuff works, first of all, and then second of all, how to stay up on all that and then manage the resources, whether they're internal or external service providers and the technology or what the, the tools inside of all those functions is kind of crazy. So many of us entrepreneurs were found an opportunity that we wanted to capitalize in the marketplace. We're really good at a trade or a skill architect, an engineer, you understand e-commerce, you understand digital marketing. For myself, I had a, you know an expertise and a story that I was able to leverage. And we, people have a specific skill set. That does not mean that you understand all of the functions of a company inside and out all the time. And more specifically, finance. And I think about how many entrepreneurs know finance the way that, that I look when I talk to every CFO who is traditionally from like private equity, been doing deals, can see the company as a financial asset. Most entrepreneurs came from, you know, just hustling. There's a very, 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 very rare breed of people that I know that went to, you know, had a stint in private equity and tour of duty or whatever you want to say in private equity where they knew numbers and then got into operations or someone that was a CPA or that was an account that then ended up becoming a business owner. But that's a very small amount of people that understand finance. And so, you think about like, again, every business owner and every business, I should say, needs the level of expertise that oversees these functions. And so as we're talking about finance, you can't not have a CFO. It's like not having a goalie. You need one, but they need to be there only a certain amount of time, given the level of activity of the size of the company and the complexity of the company. And so the next question is, why is this fractional marketplace growing? Well, from what I've gathered, and just these are just some of my opinions that, I mean, remote work is obvious. I mean, like, our team is all across the U.S. So I've got Angela who is in uh, across the country. She's working with Steve out of, uh, out, of Wisconsin, out of Wisconsin. So, you know, and Angela working in Oregon and Steve in Wisconsin, and they're doing that over Zoom. So now you're placing a high-powered person to five clients and they're anywhere that they need to be. So you're not subject to having someone sit, you know, next to you over the course or and with live within 10 miles of you, like Pat had for his business for 25 years. So I think remote work has a lot to do with it. And then the speed of change of all these different functions, people are starting to realize I can't keep up. I'm just trying to be a home remodeler. I'm just trying to be a, a, a commercial cleaner or home resen- residential cleaner or jo- a metal fabrication company. I can't know everything about IT. I can't know everything about operations and I need to rely on someone else to do that. So the, the, what, the next question is, how does this impact the market and businesses, this new fractional CFO world coming out? Is that the business owners in the middle lower market get very little attention and resources. So I think about this, it's like, why is this a big issue? Well, what has happened is, and Steve Coelho, who's a, a partner of ours, he does a, he's got a CEO peer group in Florida. His whole thing, which I, I love his mission, is to help second stage businesses get to the next stage because there's such little resources from them. We all need these resources in the middle to lower market, these high powered, high skilled executives, but typically can't afford them and it hasn't been easy to work with them. Because, and so what happens is there's a, this impacts the business because you're not getting the the forward-looking competitiveness in all these functions. So when we think about what is what are the choices that we've had, and, and now we still have, one is that you, as a business owner, 
or a president, whatever you want to call it. Again, ownership is different than I'm, I'm going to call it. When I say business owner, I've been referring to as a CEO, a GM, president, whatever you want to call it. You have two, you have three choices. The first one is you can do all these things yourself. And again, this hampers growth. So you can be doing your own payroll. You could be doing your own books. You could be doing your own warehouse, your operations, you know, your logistics, your HR. You can do all that stuff to cut costs, but you're not growing a valuable business and you're short you're short-sighted as far as like what's potential and how to realize that potential. Choice number one with doing it yourself comes with a lot of burnout and you're not doing the things that you like either because you're doing a lot of the, the e-myth like Michael Gerber says, the plumber wanted to do plumbing and next thing he knows he's got 14 plumbers but the, he realized that he or she realized that they need HR, IT and all these functions and they don't know how to do that. So choice one is do it yourself. Again, not recommend, I wouldn't wanna do it but again, people do that every day and it's a choice. Choice number two is you can supplement your activities and tasks to service providers or lower level staff members internally. So you're essentially ultimately responsible still. So you need to know how the whole company and the machine works and you're delegating tasks and time through service providers and lower level, um, you know, rank and file people, you know, great team members, but they, they're doing the work, but they need to get direction from you as the, you know, the, the last, um, the last decision maker and you're ultimately responsible to make all the decisions, to make sure that it's working the right way. And that you know what you're making the, you're making the right decisions with the right technology, the right investments, the right HR strategies. You, because they're going to be following your directions. Internal people, that's without a doubt. Service providers, I've watched so many people struggle with this. Me personally, we're like in marketing, it's like, I, I can't tell you, I don't know what to do. I know what are the activities and what the goal, I know what the outcomes I need, but I don't know how to get there. And these people, a lot of service providers, they just are sitting there waiting. And there's this big disconnect of like, Here's a plan and we have to execute the plan in an economical way for all of us to get to the outcome that we want. Choice number two of, you know, leveraging other people and internally and externally definitely leads to burnout mentally for sure, because you know that you're ultimately responsible and you don't know how to hire the right, you know, experts. And I've been burned so many times in all these different areas because I think the person's great. Then you realize that they're not halfway through a project, which delays your, you know, delays what everything else, your strategies, and it costs a lot of money and a lot of frustration and, and misery. And then there's choice number three, which is the marketplace we're talking about, it, which is growing, which are fractional executives who have the right skills, who have done the things and the, and the functions we're talking about and in a way that's affordable. And so I'm gonna walk you through just real quick and then we're gonna uh, tee up the, the two interviews is how our business model works and how, we've real, how we came to it. So in our space, you know, and I'll, I'll tell how we came to this one is a couple years ago, Pat and I did, when we realized that so many people wanted CFO services from us, we went and we explored a couple different, it was probably about four or five uh, service providers around the US to see if we could partner up with a fractional CFO company, collect an affiliate revenue share, like 10% or something like that. And we just didn't find anybody that we trusted did it the right way. Pat did a lot of due diligence and obviously he, he's uh, got high standards for himself and for everybody else. But the reality was what I saw was kind of two ends of the spectrum. One is that a lot of people, a lot of these service providers and fractional uh, CFO areas will take a really high powered executive, a, a, the right skill set, and they two to three times bill their 
salary. So that's the that's a lot of the models in the CPA and consulting space where we want to build two and a half times their salary. Well, if they're making two hundred grand, that's a lot of money. So you're taking two, you know, was that five fifty? So four, you're five fifty or five hundred grand. Sorry, doing this on the fly is that's a lot of revenue they have to generate from that one person. So there's a lot of inefficiencies there and there's no model to go off of like how they're, how they're working. And if you think about it as when I was interviewing people like that uh, 10 years ago, you're like, well, I'm going to be a 200 grand at a part-time person with no framework and doesn't ultimately have the responsibility of this. That's ridiculous. Might as well hire someone. Other end of the spectrum is a bookkeeper or a bookkeeping company, payroll company, you know, some, some CPA firms that do this stuff the, um, where they will take a bookkeeper or a controller who's making maybe making 90 grand and then change their email signature from controller to fractional CFO and say, now we do fractional CFO services. And by the way, we're going to show up once a month and ask you, what do you need from us while we uh, review some pretty charts? That's not ultimately taking responsibility. That's just a different flavor version of choice number two, where you're still ultimately responsible for that function. So what we ended up doing is we ended up hiring CFOs on our payroll, and we have a range of between 150 and 200 grand in salaries that we pay. And again, other firms are doing this, so we're not the only people doing this. It's just hopefully for knowledge for you to know what the differences are in front of you. And so what we do is we give them five clients. That's it. So they spread their time between five clients and they integrate into the business, as Pat and I said on the previous uh, the previous interview, where they're fully responsible for that function. So in EOS, if you're running it, they own all the rocks, they're on the management team, they're, they're a member of the team, which Steve Schaefer will give his stories about because he explains that this is a person part of his team. He just de- doesn't need the CFO full time. So I think that this is super important for people to understand because I think everybody needs these type of executives on their bench so they can get what they want out of their business and truly scale the value like we all want to. We can't be we can't be short-sighted and reduce our expenses because we're trying to offload our tasks to these people because it's going to mentally burn you out and you're not going to be able to get to that valuation that you want. So I really appreciate everybody tuning into this episode. And I didn't want to be weird and have like a commercial, but I end up having this exact same conversation dozens of times every week. And I want people to educate themselves because if a full-time person's right for you, go for it. But if not, at least understand what you deserve, which is the right people owning that spot who bring you ideas and can guide you where you want to go so you can live in whatever position in the company that you enjoy, create wealth, enjoy work, and make an impact. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And here's my episode with Steve Schaefer and Jimmy Fritz. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option to just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash? 
The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term. Whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want. But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way, and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials, and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner, and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Mr. Schaefer, I am so pumped to have you here actually on it where I don't know if you're going to listen to this or not because you've been an advocate for the podcast for a while, uh, which is actually how we've met. So um, I'm just super excited because you've embodied so much of what we preach, man. And I shouldn't tell everybody that because you can tell it from your own uh, mouth. But uh, thank you for being on the show, man. And yeah, it just so excited. Seriously, brings me so much joy. And so why don't you, for the listeners, just give a little bit of your background um, and then, you know, how you became into an entrepreneur. And then you can maybe describe a little bit about the business. Absolutely. And yeah, it is a little bit surreal being on the podcast. I'm not going to claim I've listened to every episode or anything, but uh, uh, definitely um, I subscribe to everything that you and Arcona have been teaching and it's helped me and our, our business in so many ways. But um, yeah, like, like Ryan said, uh, my name is Steve Schaefer. I'm the second generation owner of Schaefer Manufacturing. We're a small a metal manufacturing company based out of Milltown, Wisconsin, a very rural area. Um, we fabricate metal products for uh, critical infrastructure industries. So think about uh, like mining, agriculture, rail, construction, and things like that. Um, I've been around this company or involved in it in some way or another for the vast majority of my life, actually, um, I can remember being 10 years old, sweeping the floors <laughs> in my dad's shop, um, literally before I knew what child labor laws were. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd come back here and work in the summers, um, just laboring in the shop um, during college. And then uh, I got a call in 2008 from, from my dad, and he wanted to know if I wanted to come back and be involved in the family business. And I had never even really considered it. Um, we, it's not something we talked about growing up. And there was really no succession plan uh, to speak of in place. So I think that's probably fairly common in, in small, multi-generational family businesses. 
Um, but, you know, I, I saw opportunity. And so in 2008, I started back here and just kind of worked my way through the business, starting in sales, doing operations, human resources, you name it, learning how the business works, um, helping it grow from about 5 million to 12 million in uh, top line revenue over the course of eight years. Um, at which point I purchased the business from my father in 2016. And I was uh, 33 years old and knew everything there was to know about running companies. <laughs> and uh, well, you know, and up to that point, not much that I had done, I had failed at. Um, we had a marginal amount of success and uh, I was not intimidated or scared about business at all. Then I immediately fell on my face and lost $700,000 my first year owning the company. So, you know, after that, I became very resourceful and vowed to surround myself with very knowledgeable, passionate people who knew more than I did. And then I, my way of owning is really give them direction and then get out of their way and let them do their thing. Right. And through that process, um, eventually I got uh, linked up with you. I so. love it, man. And, and I'm going to follow your, your train of sarcasm here that you, you knew everything. I mean, you, you didn't go to school for any of this stuff. You, you were a psychology no. major, right? So like, that's maybe where the psychology really helped you out. It's like, okay, <laughs> the little self-awareness, but I mean, it's, I think it's super cool, Steve, because so many people end up back in the family business. You know what I mean? Like there's some sort of gravitational pull that I think that there's some way that we can't resist. So I, I, I find it fascinating. Do you think that it, how has that, how has that degree helped you or, or how, how have you pulled on the resources that you learned over the years? Yeah, I think, and it's just, I just have an undergrad in psychology, but like you said, Ryan, no business degrees, no finance, anything like that. I'm just a guy. Right. And, uh, so I didn't know about business, but I knew about manufacturing. And I think the way the degree helps the most is probably communication skills and developing rapport, whether that's with uh, a team member here at Schaefer Manufacturing or a customer or a vendor, just having the ability to see multiple perspectives, have empathy for different situations and um, try to find an end game that has the, the most value for the most people. Um, and, yeah. and you're, you're, I mean, it, I, I've watched your leadership, Steve, and it's it's amazing, man. And I I, I know you're a people first, and you and I have talked about conscious capitalism for years. And I just uh, it's been really fun watching you use the business as a vehicle to start to do these things that you want. So, which leads me to my next question of you know why did you purchase the business? And then also like right now, if this question probably has evolved since you purchased it, but like right now, what do you want with the business long term? And like, what are your goals? Yeah, you're absolutely right that it's evolved. When I bought it, I don't even think I really knew what I wanted. It was just the next logical step in the evolution. Um, and it was an opportunity that was available to me. So here I am signing my name to all these million dollar loans and um, really not knowing what the heck I was doing. Um, but what that has evolved to now and what I want to do with this business and what gets me out of bed in the morning is um, really how can we add the max amount of value to the most people on a day-to-day -day basis? So um, manufacturing, as you may know, has a tendency to uh, have some toxicity in the culture and there's not many people-centric businesses out there. So um, you mentioned conscious capitalism, which is about how can we add the most value to all stakeholders of a business? 
Um, and then I also really subscribed to the thought process of Bob Chapman um, in his book, Everybody Matters, which is let's create a, a trust-based culture and a people-centric business that allows people to have autonomy on how to spend their time at work and um, give them responsible freedom to make their own decisions. And when you do that, it gives people a sense of purpose and you can actually watch people thrive and even self-actualize at work. And to me, that is super rewarding and something that I want to continue to perpetuate through the company. So if we're gonna expand the reach of Schaefer Manufacturing, that's one of the main reasons why I want to do it. But ultimately from an owner, if I put my owner hat on quick, yeah, there we go. You know, <laughs> I, love it. I I want to have options. And the the more options that I have long term, the better. So um, just viewing the business as my biggest asset and not necessarily focusing so much on my role within the business. It's how can we maximize the value of the asset and keep it um, ready to transact, even though that might not be what I want to do right now, so that when opportunities arise, I do have as many options as possible. I mean, options, man. I just love how it's, it's really that word that comes down to like, where you can enjoy what you're doing without having to just burn everything behind you the moment you want something else. And, and so Steve, as, as we get into kind of the role of the CFO and the different things that um, you've been doing since engaging with us, and I'll, and I'll just, I'll even tell like a little bit of a, a primer to tee it up to you is that, you know, when you went through the boot camp and like you said, it was, it was, it was right before everything just blew up. Right. It was like February, 2020. And yeah, it was a great group. And it was just, I was high in life, you know, getting to know you and Ann and your old president, Don, and you had said to Pat and I, whatever you're doing in the numbers there, I want some of that. And like, you yes. were one of the people that kept pushing us like, Hey guys, Hey guys, Hey guys. And I actually had to talk to Pat and be like, so are we going to do this or not? <laughs> it's like, it, it, but what is it? The, the, I say all that because what is it about the training that led you to know that this was a, the, the finance and this, this, there was a gap that you were missing? Yeah, honestly, it, it completely changed my thought process. Your training, the boot camp, um, changed my thought process of how to view my company as an asset. And it made me realize that, like I said, even though we weren't gonna transact now, every business eventually transacts, whether it's through death or whatever, it's gonna transact at some point. So let's run this thing and as if it were perpetually for sale and de-risk along the way. Um, and so when thinking back at that training, it forced me to think about why I wanted to build the business in the first place. Like what's the end game? What does success even look like here? And then let's develop a strategic plan around that to increase the value of the asset over time. And it, it sounds like basic saying it now, <laughs> but back then I was just spinning my wheels and kind of making decisions in the dark and hoping for the best. And, you know, coming up with that strategic plan around why, what I wanted in the end I think um, was the main thing I got out of the the training. It's, it's like, I can't remember what house or what else we were just talking recently, Steve. And like, what's the point? <laughs> it's just really like, why are we doing this? It's like, there's a lot of risk we're taking. Like, let's make it worth it. Oh, exactly. And, you know, happiness should be the end goal of anything that you're doing in life. So if you're not happy and you're frustrated, you know, you need to do something differently. And typically that involves gaining clarity and then taking action towards a plan. 
Which leads to, which I know Mr. Pat Hobby's going to just, you know, love it when we started saying, so how do we do that? And he's going to say, well, everything, you know, almost all the world's problems can be solved in math. But yes. you and I both, yeah, I was a copier salesperson and you were a psychologist. And all of a sudden we're just running these machines, these big companies that have mm-hmm. a lot of moving parts. What was your relationship to finance prior to this? And then like, why did you realize that the, the, a lot of the, the progress you wanted to make that clarity and that execution were in the numbers. And then how did you evolve your, like, essentially what's your relationship with finance and then how has that evolved? Yeah. I, you know, like I said, no finance background or anything like that. Um, I was receiving uh, monthly financials in the form of uh, income statement and a balance sheet. I wasn't geeking out on those numbers by any means. Um, <laughs> essentially I wanted to know if we made money the previous month or not. In fact, I can remember uh, my CPA was producing the financials and I can re- literally remember telling him like, can you just put like a smiley face or a frowny face <laughs> in the email? <laughs> just that, that way I know like if we're doing- Thumbs up, thumbs down, right? <laughs> yeah, that's enough. That's all I want to know. Um, there was very little long-term focus on value growth or cash flow or anything like that. I had no idea what my asset was worth um, and we were just sort of winging it. In fact, I think it's safe to say I was intimidated by financial statements Um, and they weren't very fun to look at because, quite frankly, we weren't doing great financially as a company and we made a lot of fear-based decisions. Um, There wasn't a strong connection between the decisions we were making and the financial outcomes of those decisions. So we didn't really have a very cohesive plan on Mm -hmm. how to turn things around and it was just like beating your head against the wall, Mm -hmm. right? Expecting... Mm -hmm something different every month without really changing anything in the plan. What was but you it, don't know what you don't know. Oh, a hundred percent, man. And like you and I have shared swap stories in, you know, our personal time about like the similar upbringings that we had about that. And, and like curious, like what, what about financials intimidated you? You know, I, I didn't know how to interpret the uh, financial statements into a story that gave me indications about how to change what I was doing in the business. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was kind of pointless to try to look at them because it wasn't going to result in any change in what I was doing necessarily. Oh, if that makes sense. It was more of uh, looking back at what had already been done versus how do we use them to look forward at what we could do next. Isn't that the truth, man? It's like, sweet. <laughs> Like when you used to get them, like I remember, I remember ten years ago, like oh, like that's fantastic, and this is from two months ago, and like, do we have enough cash in the the checking account for payroll? Is my main question. Yep. <laughs> so exactly. How like you 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 touched on a, a very crucial comment that I like is action, right? Because like that's it's a story that results in action, and so when I'm trying to think of the. the well, maybe just uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going out of order a little bit, so bear with me. But like, you know, how is it different now? Because you're, now you're working with one of our fractional CFOs. But I, I wanted to think about not to just jump right ahead, Steve, but like what has changed, right? Like, so like how how was it? How was the experience different? Because here's part of the question, Steve, and, and we're going to wrap some of these uh, bullet points that you and I have discussed in, inside of this is that people underneath $50 million in revenue, and that's kind of an arbitrary revenue number, Steve, but like, you know, a, Two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars CFO. They can't afford them. They've never experienced it. It's one of the biggest challenges that I have when I was uh, talking to you. Is 
people don't know what it's like to actually work with a true CFO because they haven't, they can't afford them or they don't need them or whatever it might be. So, yeah. and it's tied into this action comment that you've made. So what's your sure. experience like now with financials now that you've got this, uh, this relationship next to you? My experience with financials now is uh, very healthy um, and there's a lot of, lot more clarity. So we have a monthly, you know, uh, what I would call the Cadillac of financial reporting, with, which is a three statement model, income statement, balance sheet and cash flow, which are organized in a way that show trailing 12 months metrics, current and projected business valuations, some net proceed metrics, hypothetically, if I were to transact the business, which is based on various multiples of EBITDA, um, you name it, it's in the spreadsheet. And that gives us a clear, concise kind of multi-year financial strategy um, that revolves around how do we increase the enterprise value by incrementally improving the, the financials, right? Um, we have a formalized budget now. And I think all those things combined uh, give me a lot of confidence, you know, which I, I want to touch on because yeah, now that the business is performing financially because of this, I have confidence to reinvest back into the business. And I know what those reinvestments are going to yield me in the long run. Um, I was just going to say, and like, so that kind of gets to the action that you're now taking with, because I, I, I like you said, flying by the seat of your pant, a lot of us were doing that, but we do that where we're just spending hoping, right? So like, how yeah. have you watched your decisions materialize into, you know, what, like maybe a couple of examples and problems that you're maybe dealing with operationally or like, you know, some lack of clarity that you're having now, like, I don't know if you got an example, like what decisions you're making now because of the information that you have? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one that off the top of my head is we were looking at cash because every business obviously needs working capital and um, our cash position wasn't the greatest. So we established a cash conversion cycle and we knew exactly how much cash we were going to have and when. And then we um, started working on uh, customer payment terms, for example. Now all of our customers are on net 30 payment terms. It used to be <laughs> all over the board. Whatever the account manager wanted to assign to that customer, that's what they were getting. Or whatever the customer requested, that's what they got. Now we standardized that at net 30, which is great. Um, we've negotiated longer terms with some of our vendors. Um, we implemented a collections process that was a little bit more aggressive. So when we're experiencing someone paying a little late, how do we escalate that at various levels? And I can literally look at my financial statements on this metric and see it improve over time right. and, and see the cash appear in the bank account. It's like magic. Once you actually have a plan <laughs> to do something, it actually worked and we have the cash to invest. But having a plan to have money in the bank is a good plan. That's a good yeah. plan that we should. <laughs> yeah. Well, and go back to the, like, I want to unpack this confidence that you have. Cause like, I don't know if it, there's confidence, like the lack of, I just remember I had anxiety when I was running the business, kind of mentally trying to hold it all together. So like, how does this impact your relationship with the business and the people in the business and even to your, you know, your spouse? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Way less stressful. We're on a solid growth path where our cash flow is becoming more and more predictable and sustainable. And this has really allowed me to first hire a new president that I probably couldn't have afforded uh, as old Schaefer. Um, he's also our EOS integrator, right? So it's going to allow me to fully live in the visionary role 
and work on parts of the business that I truly want to work on and doing yeah. things that I'm actually interested in doing <laughs> versus, you know, as I mentioned, when I was left to my own devices, we saw what happened um, in a given year. Granted, I was very new at running a business, but um, I'd rather outsource that to people who are really good at it so that I can just focus on what I want to do. Um, and so I'm having fun again. And to me, that is important. It's, you know, like I said earlier, it's about happiness. And I want to be doing things in my business that I believe I'm good at that are in my wheelhouse. And that's going to maximize the value that I can personally add with my time. I watched you, Steve, over the years, like you've never had an ego, man. And you, you're a selfless leader, a servant leader. You've embodied that since the day I've met you. And so I think that naturally that those characteristics naturally help people like get out of the day to day. Like maybe speak a little bit to like the process of hiring a president and knowing that you don't have to have all the decisions go by your desk. Cause you know, you on the show, we talk a lot about ownership role versus management role. I mean, did you have any issues with that or has this helped or hindered or like the, the process of getting out of the day to day? Yeah. So this will be, um, not the first president of the company without the last name Schaefer. So, but when my dad ran the company, he would always, he was considered the president and the owner. And, you know, those roles get intermixed so easily when you're the founder and have that entrepreneurial run business, but to transition it to what I would consider a professionally managed company, um, takes on a totally different aspect as far as the roles that we play. So, um, I, like you said, I have no ego about control. I actually think the more control I can give away, um, the more power that I have in the situation. And so having a president manage the day to day makes perfect sense to me. Um, someone how, that how does the numbers, Steve, how does the numbers enhance or enable your ability to have that situation actually come to fruition? Well, a president of this caliber, they want a large base salary. They are going to want a bonus, you know, a, an annual performance bonus. And they're probably going to want some sort of phantom stock or uh, stock appreciation rights plan. So to be able to present a package like that to someone, you need financial stability. And that is something that we lacked in the past. And it just, it wouldn't have happened the way I wanted. But I needed a leader who had been to the level that I want to take the business um, mm -hmm. so that they had the vision and the roadmap to get us there. And um, that isn't free. <laughs> <laughs> if you do figure that out, let everybody else on the, you'll have to come back on the podcast and share this, share your resource. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, outside of the the ability to afford it, because obviously with your growth and the, and the, the sustainable cash flow that you've been generating, it allows you to do that. But let's say there's someone, and I've met plenty of them who are making a bunch of money, like, I don't want to do budgeting and I don't need to do that stuff. And so there's not the clear, the financial cleanliness and clarity that you have. How does the, the, financial roadmap and the budget and the clarity that you have also help or enable help the president. Yeah. Well, just, yes. That that's part of the question. Really, like, like essentially take a step back because you can manage by the numbers. If you trust the numbers is kind of what I'm getting at versus, I don't know if you have a before and after kind of experience of, of truly letting go and being comfortable with it versus truly let it, you know, kind of like hoping that they're doing the right thing. Well, yeah. I mean, like we were saying earlier, I have, end goals as far as where I want to see this company get financially by 2024. Um, you know, EOS drives us towards having those benchmark goals. So the president is the guy who's going to come in and implement those strategies. And it's the backstop of that is the financial foundation that we are creating. 
So mm-hmm. that is totally going to guide him in what we need to do next uh, as far as actionable steps. And my role as the visionary is really just going to be to, I guess, provide as much clarity as I can to him on what I want this asset to do. And then I'm going to get out of his way and let him do it <laughs> with, with the help of, this, of the CFO, because that's kind of the strategic layer that's on top of our, mm-hmm. our finance department. You know, we have a controller, we've got accountants and, and they all have very specific roles, but having that CFO there to, I guess, educate my leadership team provide insight into how our decisions affect the financials. Those kind of things are super valuable. So I see, I envision these two working very close hand in hand on progress towards our goals. While you're going on 200 mile runs, right? <laughs> it may happen. It's happened before. <laughs> well, and, and Steve, you're, you're teeing up a couple of the other questions that I had. And it's this whole like, you know, the, 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 this fractional industry of fractional leadership, whether it's fractional salespeople, fractional CEOs, and then there's a the whole fractional CFOs. And what I, the reason we ended up building this out is because we weren't able to see a product pricing fit of an offering that made sense for the client, us as a company and the CFO. And so people have been used to kind of like, quote unquote, consultants, you know what I mean? And so like, it, I want to maybe kind of get your, your feelings on, cause you've experienced some of those and just the difference of an offering where maybe kind of explain then how your CFO relates to EOS and how it's not a consultant. I mean, and I, I struggle as you can hear me, man, like trying to describe an experience that people have never had and why that's different than something they might've experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And first as a side note, I'd like to think that my situation was one of your motivators for uh, Arcona offering. (laughs) I think you and Pat probably met me and said, Oh my God, we got to help this kid. He's in trouble. <laughs> oh, you just, you're too damn nice, man. We're like, we, we, we drove to Milton, Wisconsin. We're like, we're on the way back. We're like, we just got to do this, don't we? I mean, like, <laughs> so. <laughs> so thank you for bailing me out. But uh, yeah, I think that experiencing just a regular consultant before versus a true fractional CFO, one of the selling points to me was that they would, one, sit in on our leadership L10 meetings for, for EOS. So this is someone that is an uh, integral part of the team. They actively participate on a weekly basis. They're like a valued member of the Schaefer family. This isn't just someone who we call when we need something and they're not just managing purely by the numbers. They're getting to know the uh, intricacies of our business model and how everything works together. Actually, our, our CFO, Angela, is uh, she's even been assigned quarterly rock improvement initiatives and executed against those to help improve our uh, various fi- financial metrics on a quarterly basis. So yeah, definitely not just a consultant. Like, right, Steve. And that's like that, that last part is so key because like when I when I describe like what a I think the whole fractional industry is maturing as it as as it should be. But like like you said, it's they're truly a part of the team. You just don't need Angela full time, right? She's got four yeah. clients, five clients, and like that's it. And when I try to describe someone with the experience mentally of like before you're trying to think about all the things you might have to think about first. So like a consultant might say, what do you need from me? Like experience, like how she interacts with you, the president and your team. Is it because like, does that make sense? Does the question make sense? So yeah, the way that the difference I think boils down to education and how she's able again to provide insights into the decisions that we're thinking about making are she, uh, like, are you telling her what, to, I think that's kind of the question is like, are you telling her what to look at or is she bringing ideas and advice and thoughts to you guys? 
she's bringing ideas to us hundred percent. So yeah, she, she is strategic. And so she sees what she's going on. And a lot of the questions that she'll ask during our leadership team meetings have a point of view from, a from her financial background that maybe uh, she thinks about things in a way that the rest of us don't that allow us to, I think, consider issues in a different light than maybe we normally would have. Well, that's great to you up to the next question too, because I, I see so many times people run an EOS and without like the training or just like an awareness of what do you want, why, and the financials that I've watched people just implement the shittiest strategies really fast and have no idea <laughs> what the financial implications are. So what are you, what is your experience working with her and having the financial clarity that you do with EOS as a combination? Wow, good question. And I would say from a strategic planning standpoint, we're still in kindergarten. Like by no means are we like gurus at at strategic planning, but knowing what I want out of the asset, able to set those three-year, five-year, 10-year targets. And for us, um, we use EBITDA as one of the, the primary goal metrics for what we're shooting for, because I know that that's what enterprise value is based off of. <laughs> yeah. If Pat, if Pat was listening, I would just want to make sure he knows EBITDA <laughs> is a proxy for cash flow. And that's all that matters when you're trying to evaluate a business is, you know, how sustainable and predictable that cash flow is, right? So um, that's I think where EOS and Arcona fractional CFO services have really merged is a lot of our strategic targets have to do with the financials and looking ahead at what can we do to improve the enterprise value? And, and the financials aren't dictating everything, right, Steve? So it's no. like it, like you're having these ideas and people are getting their rocks and you're doing your your strategic, whatever your strategic mm-hmm. initiatives are. Mm-hmm. And then you're rolling those in, and using the financials as a lens, right? I mean, like it's not, yep. I think people get, sometimes people get like too much anxiety. Like, well, I won't be able to do what I want long-term. Or I don't want to do no. budgeting because budgeting is con- is going to constrain me. What, what would you say to those people that are thinking that? I would say that regardless of what you want from your business, one of your goals should be to identify and eliminate uh, organizational specific risks that you have. You know, do you have just one customer? Well, you need to diversify your customer. Do you have a solid leadership team? That's something you probably should have. Um, how are your quality management systems? Those are things that are universal to any business, regardless of what system you're having. And eliminating those risks uh, essentially is going to help you raise your enterprise value. So, you know, it's, I think it's just, you just have to look at it through a different lens, I think. So when I think about how much I've watched you grow, man, it's just so cool. And like, I think about talking to, you know, we're all in peer groups. You're in a peer group. I've been in a bunch and I speak to a lot. Talking to the people that are listening that are like, obviously they're slightly bought in if people are tuning in, Mm -hmm. but like to people that are just skeptical of this concept of viewing your company as a financial asset, having a CFO that's sitting there, like, Mm -hmm. what would you say to the skeptics? Um, I think one reason a lot of people don't want to do that is because they're so comfortable in their role within the business that they're afraid to step out of that and think about the business in a different way because they're attaching too much of their identity to the role within the business. Sorry, I'm getting psychological on you here. Yeah, do it. You know what? You have to be able to emotionally separate yourself from your role in the business. Um, Otherwise, 
if you want a lifestyle business and you just want to solve for annual income and buy another boat, then that's cool. Like I, I don't knock those people if that's what they want, but if you want um, like multi-generational wealth and the opportunity to grow something that's bigger than yourself, that doesn't rely on you to grow, then you should definitely think about uh, your business like an asset. I love it, man. I love it. I get it. I just get to bring you along and just have conversations with people all day long. And I think it's super fun to watch other people have the light bulb moment like you have, and then just take massive action to it because you know, I think there's a lot of people I see where it, you know, there's like the, the joy of build, like the joy of knowledge and then just being comfortable that you now know it without having to do any action. Yes. <laughs> and you're the opposite of that because like, like I was joking about the 200 mile, but for all the people that are listening in, Steve likes to run long distances like Mr. Forrest Gump. So <laughs> uh, massive action is probably part of your middle name or something. Yes, I do. Uh, I enjoy stretching myself mentally and physically and endurance sports allow me to do that. Certainly. I just, I hope Ryan, that the people listening that are considering this just realize that you don't need some big corporation to have a strategic portion of your financial management. Like this is something that's very affordable and accessible for almost every company. And, um, you know, just think about it. Why wouldn't you want some strategic oversight on your largest asset? I appreciate it, man. And you know how I like to wrap these conversations up. I'll ask you the easy one first, which is, well, first of all, thank you again. But where can people, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best place that they can uh, reach you? Um, yeah, you can find Schaefer Manufacturing at uh, schafermfg.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Steve Schaefer. Awesome, man. And the best question is, what does intentional mean for you, Steve? I've been waiting for this one. I've heard a lot of responses on this. And so I had to think very carefully, um, choose my words carefully. So to me, intentional means having clarity on what you want so that you can take daily action towards a purpose-driven life. Just going to bottle that up, man. That might be one of the best ones coming from the psychology major. I mean, come on. I love it. Steve, I can't thank you enough, man. Thank you for being a part of the Arcona family and being a big supporter. And just, I appreciate you so much. Oh, it's an honor to give back, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. Mr. Jimmy Fritz. I am so pumped to have you on the show. <laughs> How's it going, Ryan? <laughs> uh, we were just, we were just, uh, I was getting, we were bantering back and forth and you have blessed us with combed hair and a nice collared shirt and you're just all ready to go. It's all for the podcast is what I was told. <laughs> Yeah, just that's exactly what I was thinking. Oh, you got me on a day where I don't have a backwards hat on and t-shirt. <laughs> um, which is going to lead us into the, like a little bit of your background, which I think is, uh, so again, what Jimmy just said, normally backwards hat and a sweatshirt on. And I want to tell, I want you to say, while well, you're telling the background, tell everybody what everybody dressed up as Halloween for. At, at, uh, it was a couple of years ago. You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> your whole your whole staff. They were dressed up as me, and everybody was in a hoodie. And, <laughs> and uh, all, all, I mean, it's a, a woman company, so everybody was making fun of me, and it's very uh, <laughs> good look at what everybody thinks of me as. So. Oh, I love it so much. So, so Jim, um, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of a background on the business? You know, kind of just the overall setup and kind of what you guys have right now, and then you can talk. You know, maybe a couple clip notes of like where you've been as, as, uh, where you've been as it relates to the company and the family business and where you guys are today. 
Yeah. So the, I mean, the, I'm a second generation uh, business owner. My family started the wedding shop, uh, which is like a retail store in St. Paul, Minnesota back in the seventies. And just, you know, throughout my life, I just got the uh, ability to like work on catering and work on cutting the grass and then working in the retail store. And so as I, uh, you know, got older, I was got, I got more technical. So I was into the, e- not the e-commerce at the time, but the techie things like Google and social media. And so when I graduated from college, my parents were like, do you want to come in the business or don't you? And I like the opportunity of being able to use my creativity, even though like wedding products aren't something that I normally <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't even say it without laughing. But, yeah, but it's, like, I don't know that much about specifically, like I don't, not interested in women's apparel, but it was the other stuff was interesting to me. So uh, I was like looking at numbers and analytics and, and, you know, technical things where like, you know, my family was more into like the dress designs and the retail store. So, you know, I just happened to be like, Hey, I think we should start selling online and not, spend money on yellow pages because nobody <laughs> we use those to stick in the door at college so people don't uh you know so we can sneak people in after the door <laughs> what business we're gonna call uh, we google for that and so you know at the time though that was like pretty progressive stuff and and so you know we just kind of migrated to e-commerce and private label and it was at a time where it's like you'd bring that up and people would say like like, no way wedding stuff will ever be sold online. No one's going to buy that. And people are always going to go to a store and, you know, flash forward after COVID now. I mean, that's like how everybody shops. <laughs> Certainly, even for experiential purchases like wedding dresses, like they're going online, they're doing all the research and they're coming in with what they want. So we kind of created the more, uh, I guess it would be multi-channel or, or cross channel function. It's like, I don't care how people want to pay us. I don't care how people want to communicate. I don't care how they want to get the dress. We're just open to whatever channels make sense. And so now we have, you know, over 50% of our sales are done remotely through some type of internet channel. And and it's been really easy just getting everybody on board with all that stuff along the way, right? You know, you know oh, yeah. it's Sarcasm. Turn the website on. Yeah. I mean, you know, 15 years ago, you didn't even have Shopify or these built platforms. So it was like you get to hire a developer to custom build it. Mm -hmm. But really the big, the big challenge is, is, is the cultural shift from a traditional brick and mortar, traditional retailer where it's much more waterfall project management where you got to do step one, then step two, mm-hmm. and you buy your market and you buy. When you're in the e-commerce world and you start spending thousands of dollars a day on Facebook ads and Google ads, and like it's so dynamic and so fast changing. It's like your culture has got to move and you mm-hmm. got to be able to adapt on a dime because if you are spending $1,000 a day on an ad, that ad's not performing, like you can blow through money quick. So mm-hmm. just a cultural shift changed real real quick and that that took some time to adapt and got to got to know the marketing numbers which uh we'll get into a little bit too and and jimmy we don't have to go into the full long story because you know for the listeners that are tuning in i met you at like a couple ventures ago as i was kind of trying to build out arcona so you've been very graceful and yeah whatever i said like six years ago resonated with you we won't go down that whole journey but you know i i want to just kind of summarize it, Fritz, where like, you know, because we're going to be talking about the CFO and running the business like an asset, but like your shift in mindset, you know, from like where you were before, like, even, I don't know if you want to think about where you and I were sitting on the, at the patio bar and like where you're at now and how do you view your business differently? So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, the prior 
to us meeting. And, you know, I had some information and I, I mean, I, I mean, I do a lot of reading and I, and I research a lot of blogs, but it was very, the business was run in a way where it was like, we just have to get to the next day. Like, what are our sales today? How are we going to make those sales happen? We know we have problems. We know we have to fix those problems. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we hire consultants or there's this thing called EOS. Maybe we look at that. But a lot of the decision-making was based off of impulse, which I do think a lot of entrepreneurs are good at and they're willing to take risks, but it wasn't very calculated. So I was explaining problems, which were very like mathematical if you actually break them down. But because we didn't understand how it worked, we didn't understand. I mean, we understood cash flow, but we didn't really understand cash flow. We didn't understand valuation. You know, there was just all this. So it's, you didn't have like a real system or a goal that you would work towards. And, and when you were talking to, with when kind of uh, planting a seed, like you and your folks and your family and the executives, you, you talked about like solving for annual income, right? Like what, you know, you were investing in, there was a period of time where you invested heavily and it caught you off guard a little bit, but like kind of like the, the shift in the mindset of what you're solving for, like what were you focused on before as far as like, was it revenue? Was it cash flow? And then now you have different goals as it relates to your long-term goals. Like, so how are those different? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, top line revenue and employee count seemed to be like KPIs we kind of marched towards. And, you know, <laughs> the mind shift has changed much more to like efficiencies and profitability and valuation because, I mean, we were driving a lot of top line sales. That's never been probably an issue of mine. I can spend money marketing and get more <laughs> on the door. But there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. And the, and the issues from even a transition, right, from first generation to second generation, I think the challenges we're again, very mathematical, but also somewhat emotional. So it's, you know, will I have enough money if I retire, you know, from my parents' perspective, or what happens if Jimmy runs the business into the ground? Like, mm -hmm. what does that do for my impact? And at the time, the analogy I use, it's like when you play Monopoly and some people just throw all the money into a big pile. It's like, you know, you can pay for things and it's not a problem, but then you're always kind of wondering like, well, how much money do I have? How much do I actually need? Mm -hmm. and so when we you know, started working together, we started getting those like tactical, like where are the objectives? Where are the concerns? Let's just solve those problems so that we can just get to like, okay, if here's the numbers we have to hit, what are the steps that have to happen to make that work? And then it's like hire the accountant, hire the, you know, financial advisor, hire the mm -hmm. insurance company, whatever it happens to be. And so it took a lot of that emotional, I think, stress off of like my parents to where they didn't feel like they had to be like super active that allowed us to actually take higher risk. Cause even honestly, first, second generation, I have a different priority level than my parents who are in their like late sixties, early seventies. You know, they don't want to take high risk mm -hmm. activity. They want to retire at some point. And, you know, at, at you know, late thirties, early forties, I was like, yeah, let's, let's grow. Let's roll thing. a gamble it all again. Right. And yeah, what I think roll. like, well, and, you know, specifically, you know, you and I have talked for years and I talked to a lot of family businesses where like, the, when you separate the ownership and the equity compared to the roles, there comes a little bit of clarity too. And like you guys started dealing with the, the equity in the estate plan, right? Versus like, hey, like <laughs> I remember like there was all that conflation. <laughs> the moment your dad saw like the clarity, he's like, oh, I think he went down to Florida and like played the guitar for like <laughs> three or four months or something like that. Did he grow up like, years years around several years of doing that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like, so when I think about, you know, how clear you are every time I see you, you're like, you're, you're marching towards it, like a valuation EBITDA. I mean, like you're so ingrained on it. It's like, 
what was it like internalizing that and creating that goal? Like, I mean, how did like, how does that change your, your decisions every day and like what you're excited to be doing and how, how you're measuring the things that are going on in the business? Yeah. I mean, at the prior to that, again, it was a lot of emotional stuff. It's like, we knew there was an issue, but we couldn't really quantify what the issue was or, or where, how it would impact all of these different things because everything's so commingled. I mean, at the time, you have the emotional side of the business. You have the cash flow of the business paying for my entire family plus employees and and all of that stuff. And then you also have the, uh, you know, you have like a transition plan and, and you're trying to like manage to all of this stuff. But what ends up happening is it's like people are just emotionally saying things and then you can't really wrap your head around a solution. And so then you just start marching to things like top line revenue mm-hmm. and we have a big company now and like that, look at how great that is. And it's like, but is that really accomplishing the personal financial goals, the emotional goals of like, are you enjoy coming to work every day? Mm-hmm. And then also you have a company that you're also trying to manage to, and it's all intertwined. And I mean, the financials even, you know, which I'm sure happens to a lot of small businesses, everything gets commingled between we had real estate, we had wedding shop, we had Kennedy blue, you know? And so then all of a sudden all this stuff gets, start, gets, and then it's like, well, then we got to spin up new things to try to generate new revenue because we can't even figure out what the plan is. Mm-hmm. And then that just became shiny objects that were, mm-hmm. you know, more work that made no profit. And in and, and your, like in, when you and I've talked at some of these events, you know, that we'll, we'll participate in, we'll, we'll just say they're the Vegas conferences, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're marching towards like evaluation for options, right? I mean, like that's what you've constantly been saying to me. And now it's kind of rippled through the organization and one of the big things, Jimmy, as you've watched uh, our, like our company evolve over the years is like, I found it so fascinating where like, you know, pretty much I was trying to figure out the product pricing fit of like, okay, we know people need education we know they need these services, but you and I kind of engage in some other things. But at the end of the day, after eight years, it's the CFO is like the number one linchpin to glue all of this stuff together. And so one of the hardest things in part, one of the main reasons of this episode and this, these two part series is helping people understand what it's like to actually work with the CFO, because a lot of people think that they have, or cause like they got there's consultants that are labeled CFOs. And like, there's a whole like slew of different service providers that kind of confuse people. And then there's like their true CFO. So like maybe kind of speak to like, what was your, how were you managing the financials and what was your relationship in to the financials prior. And then we can talk about kind of the evolution of how you got to where you are. Yeah. So, uh, and just to take a step into the evolution, I mean, like you said, we've worked together. We've talked about this stuff extensively over the years. So I got the general concept. <laughs> you quit listening to the podcast. You're like, dude, I just talked to you. All. I don't need to listen to your podcast <laughs> already. I don't need to listen to the podcast too. Do I? <laughs> but, um, yeah. So what happens, and I remember it was at the training, that we went to probably a couple of years ago where it was very encapsulated in terms of like, here's what has to happen to make the big numbers move, which is cash flow, debt, valuation. And I sat there and I was like, well, that's fantastic, except for I have to now go take this all back to my team. And whether you call them CFOs, controllers, AP, you know, it doesn't really matter, accountants. The reality is like you need somebody that understands how that works. Otherwise, all it is me just kind of like trying to educate these people. And that's where you at the time, I think we're in the process of launching your CFO services that can quarterback all this stuff. 
which then allows it to get down to like, here's why we're doing it. Here's the goals for the company. And then when you layer that on top of like EOS or whatever operating system you're working on, it's like, we know the goal is this. And now I have somebody that can put financials and numbers in place so people know what they have to do. And like everything, right? If it's being measured, it's being managed. If it's not being measured, it's not being managed. And I've had accountants, controllers, A people, AP people, and they don't they don't look at it as that holistic perspective. It's like if I ask them to do something, they'll do it. The problem is like I'm not a financial expert myself either. I'm just trying to run the business and sell stuff. And that's where well, I, I think, think that that's what you just nailed uh, like a crucial point. And because like in your previous comment, you kind of you lumped the CFO in with the controller, bookkeeper, AP consultants. But I think one of the things that and you're you're kind of alluding to it just now is that you were still responsible for knowing how the machine was built, telling these people what to do without truly knowing, right? Where the CFO is that kind of like they're sliding in and they're the, the glue behind all that stuff. So like explain what it was like, you know, how kind of ex- maybe explain like what was the data like that you're getting prior and how that how that impacted your stress and need to manage it and how that's different once you have a CFO. Yeah, so the, the stress is one, I have to feel like I'm an expert on the numbers I need to be pulling. And I found it was hard because I would ask questions that I thought seemed very easy or logical, and I would be told, well, that's not how it's done. Can you give me an example? Because I know you got plenty. <laughs> well, so for our business, we take in deposits, and then those deposits sit on the balance sheet. We order the dress, and then the dress ships three months later. So it's it's challenging because you're trying to take cash in. Mm-hmm. You pay for this merchandise, but then we actually pay the vendor like three months later. So on paper, like it looks good because you have cash coming in, but you have all the expenses that are going out. And most helpful things that I've ever had happen uh, that reduced my stress from like highest stress I've ever had to almost no stress was when COVID hit. It was like we have this much money in the bank, but we also owe a bunch of money to a bunch of vendors. And like in the past, I would ask, like, can I get that on a balance sheet? Can I get that somewhere so we can manage it? But like a traditional accountant would say, well, that you don't need it that way because we, we when we file taxes. <laughs> We don't, we don't put that information on. I'm like, I understand that, but I need this number to know how to manage the business because my cash is only my deposits minus the expenses I'm going to owe for the merchandise. And if that, if I look at just the deposits, I would look like, oh, I could sit with a, you know, the store closed for a year. But mm-hmm. when you factor in the different number, do I have a year? Do I not have a year? And so it's just a situation like that, which nobody thinks they're going to have to close their store or nobody thinks there's going to be this catastrophic issue, but th- it happens every five, 10 years. There's mm-hmm. some type of economic change or whatever industry change and having your numbers in a way that you can actually make decisions on versus what you have to send to the IRS at the end of the year are two totally different things. <laughs> right? and a good CFO is able to like understand that there's just multiple ways that this information is getting used so we can format it and, two or three ways, if that makes sense or not. Well, you know, one of the ways that I think in one of our conversations we had, we were talking about like, you know, how you were managing it before. It's like how I did it and how most people do it. So like, we're not like, it just is what it is, but I call it like two dimensional where you just get a bit and piece of information. And then like, once you wrap it together the way that, you know, a CFO would and have that advice that's layered on top of it, it's like three dimensional. And I don't know if that relates or if you, that resonates with you. And like, so going back to the CFO and in, in that's kind of like they know how the the whole mousetrap is built. You've worked in, we don't have to name any names or anything. I've like worked with various consultants and different people over the years. Uh, for the listeners in who have who I said, hey, I've got a finance consultant. 
how is that different than an integrated fractional CFO and, and in your mind and your experience? I find the fractional consultants can accomplish a task based off of what their expertise is in. A CFO is looking at it at a, as a much higher, more generalist level and strategic level. So an accountant is very good at preparing taxes and giving tax advice. And they will do what they know and their expertise is around that. And so that that is what I use accountants for. We still have an accountant. Like, and they do a great job. Mm-hmm. But I don't have them compiling my financials like I used to because they would put... I mean, our financials for a lot of years from an accounting firm we work with was set up so they could submit it as fast as they can <laughs> to, to get the taxes done. So like the chart of account was like, we always have the line six is marketing. And it's like, well, what if I don't want marketing on line six? Cause I want to track marketing expenses, you know, you know, in for towards gross profit or contribution margin. And it's like, well, we don't do it that way. Cause it's so much more efficient to get our taxes submitted this way. So, oh my gosh. and so it, that's just a super simple example, but for years, that's how we operated. And just because that's what they told us. And I didn't have somebody and I wasn't as an expert in, in accounting or financials to be able to articulate that where like a CFO will come in and say, well, that's great from a tax perspective. We're willing to spend the money to compile it two ways because we need to operate as a business. And then we also know we need to do taxes. Oh, and by the way, how much time is it going to take to just change the accounts? And, and like you're, you're talking not that much money to redo the financials for taxes versus the way we were doing it. So it's, again, it's just, that's the mindset. I think you get of an expert on a topic versus a CFO who's more of a strategist and, and generalist. Well, and, and yeah, oh, I love it. And the, um, the other experiences that a lot of people have is that let's say they have a consultant that could do what you're saying that jumps in and says, what do you need from me compared to like the integration that like, you know, because Pat was your CFO now it's Angela, but like, do you consider them a consultant or a team member, I guess is what I'm trying to say, versus like other consultants that you've used in the past where they're just kind of waiting in the wings? Explain maybe how your what what's your experience like working with someone like Pat or Angela? Yeah, I mean, we we try to integrate consultants or employees as part of the team. Now, obviously, if you put more time on the team, you're, you're, you're more integrated into the culture. So like Angela and Pat have spent more time on the team. So I would probably consider them more on the team side of things. The the big difference, again, like with Angela and Pat, is they tell me what I need to do versus me having to ask questions and they say, well, we could do this, this, or this. I mean, there is some of that, but that's more of the business operational things mm-hmm. that they wouldn't be an expert in, but they still have a solution. When it comes to, hey, we're having these issues or there's things that we have to deal with, Angela will just say, we just had our traction meeting. She was like, here's here's what I need to do for rocks and here's why they're important. And I'm like, okay. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, Are you sure you don't want to give a bunch of granular detailed advice on that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we spent one minute talking about those rocks and we're like, yep, it sounds like those statements would make a lot of sense for us. And if you can produce those and do it all for us, great. Let me know if you need anything. And, you know, so I think that's, again, that's the extra value you get with an experienced CFO. And still, I was like, but here are some other things that I'm working on that I would be helpful. Is that something that you can help with? And and again, it's like, yes, we can or no, we can't. And there's a way to get to where we need to get to. And it, well, you had made a comment to me at one point where you're like, I just need to call them also with my ideas because I have lots of them and I just need to know, am I crazy or not crazy? Unpack that. What did you mean by that? Well, for, from like a financial perspective? I don't know. I don't know. You just like, man, I just have so many ideas and I just need to call someone and be like, is this like, should I do this? Should I not do this? And like, 
you know, there's that level of bouncing off someone. I don't know if it was the financial impact and cash flow or the future value of the company that you're marching towards or like, you know, cause I think it's that, that backstop that people miss out a lot on. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm the business. I'll give you an example. So like I'm a business from like my old company. I, I understand all the things I want to do, but I don't know how much they cost today, how that impacts the future value of the company. And so you just kind of flounder around just hoping or guessing. Yeah. Well, so one, it's a uh, funny story because visionaries, I feel like get, I'm a visionary. So we, we get a lot of crap for coming up with a lot of ideas and people ask like, do you have a lot of ideas? I'm like, well, I have a lot of ideas. I also recognize when you have good financials that a lot of my ideas cost the company a lot of money. So <laughs> I, I prefer to actually be profitable and like growing and making money than I do just implementing new ideas because at the end of the day, that's why we're all here. Right. So um, from a strategic perspective, I can go and say like, here's an idea, here's something I'm working on. Cause that's often how it'll do it. I'll just kind of work on the, on the side cause I enjoy that. But then it's like, there still has to be a plan that puts in place and you're starting a new product, a new category. There's going to be costs. There's going to be a time when you're probably not profitable. And then there's going to be, has to be a forecast of like, it's going to generate this much cash flow and this much increased valuation on the company. And I can hand that off to like an Angela now and be like, can we get a breakdown or forecast on that? Because if it's just a, I might think the idea is great, but if there's no path to success or there's high risk that I don't want to get involved with, it's like, I would rather just know that up front. And then we can all make a decision based on a math equation versus like, Jimmy's just got a different idea today. And when I've watched you over the years, man, like get like, I mean, cause I'm the same way. I think that's why I loved going to conferences with you. We just talk about the blue sky ideas for like two days while we're just in La La Land, but then you go back to the shop and you got to execute. And I've watched you with precision over the last few years, focus on the biggest needle moving initiatives in your company. And I like, I'm trying to think of like, you know, there was, there's, I don't even know if you got a couple examples of the big initiatives that you would maybe wouldn't have focused on with the financials now that are front and center. Well, so I'm very, uh, I'm, I, I, I love growing companies and I love the excitement of the stress and the, I mean, it was cool to have a lot of employees and a lot of top line revenue. I'm not going to say that isn't something that creates endorphins and creates things that are enjoyable, but I also was under immense stress. The profitability wasn't where it needed to be. And it created a lot of like complexity in my life, just emotionally trying to manage all that stuff. So for now with what how I look at the numbers, it's like the the cash flow. I'm okay having more or less cash flow from a strategic perspective to grow valuation, or if it's going to accomplish a long term goal. But I also kind of have a hard bottom now where it's like if my cash flow goes too low, it creates more undue stress in my life that I don't want because if I have less stress, then I can do better work, mm-hmm. which can actually grow the company faster. And it, 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 it kind of comes down to where I can say, here's the number we decided on. I'm willing to do this, to do this, to make this grow. If long-term it's better for everybody, but we're not going to go below this because I mean, it's not just my stress. When the stress of the company being less profitable happens, I'm stressed out. My team gets stressed out. And I don't want that type of a culture where everybody's coming to work with their hair on fire every day because we're burning cash because mm-hmm. If an idea that wasn't well thought out, well, it wouldn't even say well thought out. It just wasn't forecasted and figured out if this even makes sense. So, well, and I think you, you, you're, you keep it, like you're, you're interchanging profitability, which is obviously good, but you like cash flow is what is that kind of what you're referring to? Because, like, you know, obviously being profitable is necessary, but that doesn't ge- being having a profitable product line doesn't generate cash necessarily, right? So, like, you're 
Are you you're focused on like is are you saying that a lot of the stress was juggling cash? Is that because I'm, I'm maybe yeah, interpreting profit, profitability uh, more so cash flow somewhat now because you know again we would take the money up front and then we would spend it so we always generally had cash mm-hmm. but um, and you know and how we would even manage that cash though prior to having that is you don't spend any money for a while until you have so much cash and then you get to the end of the year and you're like hey we have all this profit now we got to spend it in the next three months to try to get all the <laughs> initiatives in and so it was like again like it, it worked. It, it made sure the company was profitable, but even that would add stress where when you have like monthly forecasting of like, here's how much money you can spend as long as everybody's hitting their budget, we can still make adjustments. It gives you way more time to get initiatives done. And it takes that, again, stress and pressure off of, of people. So you, um, I, I, you are so laser focused now too of like, you know, the different systems where, so you got the financial foundation, the three statement model projected out and you're running EOS and you are a data machine for sales and marketing. So I'm just thinking about the conversation we had last week when we were talking about how your desire and where we're marching towards of tying marketing, EOS, and the financials together. Maybe just paint the picture for everybody of like what you and I both know is possible, what you're marching towards as far as like tying those things together. Yeah. The So I'm by trade, I'm like digital marketing. I love it. I've hacked every single gray campaign you could to try to grow sales. I I felt like that has been a very like part of my identity for a lot of years. And I've always, one of the smartest things someone told me is like, Jimmy, are you going to be smarter than all the engineers at Google, all the engineers at Facebook? And I'm like, probably not. Like I'm sure (laughs) all those smart people and the AI they're building, like it's not sustainable to say, oh, we're going to just find this hack or we're going to stuff keywords or, you know, whatever the tactic of the day is, you know, or the week. And so today it really is, I think, about just knowing your numbers because when you look at like a a typical marketing campaign in a marketing company, in a financial situation, it would be like you can spend this much per day and then they look at how much revenue is created from that. Well, there's a cost of goods, there's a cost to fulfill the product, there's shipping, there's all these variables. And so there's the contribution margin, which really is what you're actually trying to march to. And I'm shocked at how many companies don't really look at that on a you explain category. it for the listeners because like first of all pat is probably cheering in whatever room he's listening to this in or while he's walking that you just dropped contribution margin <laughs> he's the one that told me about it so that's like i can give him credit yeah i mean contribution margin is really your your sales minus all of your expenses including marketing and like i said fulfillment costs shipping even product development costs like we're looking at that because to develop and launch a product has a cost you need to you need to figure out what the actual lifetime cost of that stuff is. So it's like you can spend X amount of money on Facebook or Google to drive a visitor, right? And so that visitor is going to convert at a certain dollar amount. And if if you get it into like the equation of what contribution margin it is, it really comes down to is this a scalable product? And we're finding that certain products we sell are very scalable and we can put our time and money into those and make more profit. And I don't want to say it's like an ATM machine. But it can be where like, kind you of. put a dollar in Google <laughs> and you get $3 out. And if out of that $3, you profit two, it's like, okay, well, Do can more. we keep scaling it up, right? And obviously that's oversimplified. There's scaling challenges and there's logistic challenges and costs can go up and down. But being able to have that on an ongoing basis so you can feel confident in where your money is, again, it just it changes it from, I think we should do this, I think we should try that, to here's a number we want to hit. 
if we do these things, does that number go up or does it go down? So amazing, dude. And then, so that says it relates to your marketing uh, functions. And then how has the financial foundation, the clarity going forward with the valuation you're marching towards changed the KPIs or the discussions or the rocks that you're having with EOS? Yeah, well, the scorecard numbers have really evolved because when you start to look at what numbers are actually important, like contribution margin, or, you know, you start to say, okay, which teams are responsible for this? Oh, wait, you're tracking inventory. We should be tracking contribution margin because at the end of the day, if the inventory is out, the contribution margin goes down, right? And so you start to say, like, these 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 KPIs that maybe sometimes get brought up to a leadership team level aren't really leadership team level issues mm-hmm. that we don't care – all the little stuff that has to go into delivering the ad or delivering the product, that's that's just that's a department issue. Mm-hmm. So what it's done is it's helped us push really the numbers on the scorecard up to be more aligned to the financial statements. So we'll look at a financial statement and we'll say, okay, yep, it really drives me crazy sometimes on all the apps and all the fees and stuff that a Shopify can in you know add on to your fee. But like what impact does that actually have on the bottom line? And it's generally not that much. Like, how much do returns have on the bottom line? Okay, well, that's tens mm-hmm. of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So mm-hmm. it's like that needs to be a KPI. Who needs to be responsible for that? And so, you know, we've been able to move huge numbers because we've looked at the financials and added to the scorecard. I mean, discounting in a retail store has just been a cultural thing for, I mean, really since my parents started it. And I would look at the financials and I'm like, we are discounting hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. That's just straight off the bottom line. And it's hard to take a culture of a company and say, no more discounting tomorrow. I tried that when I was in my 20s. It didn't work. Just made me, you know, made me out to be the bad guy. Now what we've done is we said, okay, let's take a scorecard number and try to go from discounting from 10% to 9.5%. Because that half a percent could still be tens of thousands of dollars per year. Mm-hmm. And is it really going to impact the conversion rate of the customer? That's now the question, right? Do we convert with a lower discounting rate? And I think we've went from 10% down to 7% in like six months, which <laughs> has made the year considerably more profitable. And, and, and our, our conversion rate's the same. We've just made strategic decisions like instead of giving 10% off to all customers, we'll say up to this dollar amount, you can have up to $100 off. And to the customer, the value is the exact same. The conversion rate's the same, but we're saving percentages uh-huh. on our bottom line. It's so fun, dude, watching, like listening to you, because it's like, again, you and I are the visionaries and like, like you, we were flopping all over the place six years ago. And now you're, you're still being creative and like loving it. It's just, you know what you're doing and why it's just so yeah. fun to watch. And it, so Fritz, as we're wrapping up here, your relationship to the business, like, what do you want out of it long-term? Like, why are you doing all this? So I enjoy I enjoy the growth and I enjoy the stress and I like building the business. I'm probably the builder by like that's probably my personality. So that part I do enjoy. I I do prefer like the strategic side. I think really building a sustainable company without me involved in any of the day to day other than the visionary is I think the best for the company, best for the customers. And so you know, for me, it's like I want to grow the company, but I also want to reduce my time so I can focus it on different projects or maybe, you know, maybe I'll do something that's non-business really. I'll spend more time with my family or something, right? Like I want that flexibility and options in life because that's why we all, I think a lot of us create companies so we don't have to work the nine to five. And then what we get is we work any 80 hours a week we want. And it's not probably the goal we were looking for. And I don't mm-hmm. want to be that person. 
Or if I do mm-hmm. want to be the 80 hour a week person, I want it to be my choice because I enjoy it, not because I have a job that has to get done or or the company won't be able to deliver a product or whatever. So Well said, man. Um, and then uh, one of my last questions too is um, <clears throat> for, for someone that like, is still kind of wrap their head around the CFO and like the CFO's role, a fractional CFO's role in the impact of like the progress that you're making or like themselves for the somewhat, maybe for the skeptic, Jimmy, like they're going, Hey, I got a control or I got an accountant that's doing this and they're trying to manage it all. What would you say? Like, what would you say to the skeptic? I mean, I would say most business owners I talk to are using some type of financial person, probably an accountant in a lot of ways to do their financials. And I will ask them, like, how many people are happy with their financials? And usually it's very few are happy. So I, I actually think most people are accepting mediocrity because that's what they're used to. And they hear that from other business owners. But, I mean, you need to know predictably your cash flow and a budget on how to get there. You, you need to know your profit, what that's going to look like. And you should have a pretty good handle on your valuation. And everything you're doing within EOS or whatever system you're managing it should be aligning to all of those numbers. And if your financial person isn't able to give you what that stuff works on, I don't know how you can manage a business. And and I think the problem is like, as people do work like that, you have to compete with those companies. So if people are laser focused on like this decision versus that decision, and you're kind of figuring things out and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, you're just going to be less competitive. Just it'll slow your growth 100%. Ooh, I mean, I think you, you just gave me a whole different like arrow in my quiver, man. Like, I love that. Okay, I mean, think about this. How many companies, and we did the same thing too when we first started doing EOS. You go into your two-day planning, you start setting 10-year goals. We're going to do 500 million in sales. And it's like, you, you have all these like ambitions that we're just going to always be growing at 30% or 50% or whatever, you know, you know, because everybody's motivated and excited. And then you have to go back and actually execute that. And you're like, well, we don't have the distribution. We don't have the cash. You know? And it's like, you have to like know all that stuff. So you need somebody there that's like, okay, well, let's actually put some pen to paper here and figure out how we're going to get to the billion dollars or whatever. It's whatever goal. Right. Yeah. To get to. And I, I find very rarely is any of that stuff done. And then once you go back and do that work, you're like, oh, we just, we should have done that day one. And that's, that's why you need to, if your financial person isn't giving you that advice, you're, you're missing out. Uh, Fritz, man, this has been so fun having you on the show. Last question. Well, two last questions. Um, one is where can people find you? They can find me at uh, wedding shop or Kennedy blue. I don't, uh, I don't do a ton of social media, but you come to those websites, you wedding products. We got the, the digital marketing ninja doesn't do any social media. Isn't that just a telling sign? <laughs> um, and then uh, Fritz, uh, I don't know if you, if when's the last time you listen to the podcast, but I like to ask what people, uh, what their definition of intentional means. Um, Cause I love everybody's different types of uh, definitions, but what does the word intentional mean for you? intentional. What activity am I doing today to get the outcome I'm trying to get to tomorrow? And so if I'm listening to this podcast, because I want this outcome, right? And so that's awesome, Fritz. Dude, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Good talking to you. Well, I hope that interview and those interviews provided some value and shed some light as far as like what what you deserve. I mean, every business owner deserves to have high-powered, skilled talent sitting next to them, helping them row the boat in the direction that they want to go, which is a more valuable company with more choices. And 
You deserve it. And hopefully, you know, again, we would obviously love a phone call if you're interested in the fractional CFO services. We have those boot camps coming up. We've actually got a physical one coming up in November on the second and third at Bethel University. It's five grand. It's two days. We unpack all five principles, how to view your view and run your company as a financial asset. Highly recommend checking that out. But at the end of the day, you need a CFO and you need to go find someone that's capable of doing it. I don't care who it is. The only real way to get where you want to go is to have someone that can take your ideas and strategies, roll them into the financials, project them out into the future and understand how all of the things in the business touch the numbers. So that way you can see the impact on cash flow today and how that impacts or the value of the company, whether it gets you on track or off track. So take take some time to think about it and then don't forget to check out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessments on the website. Um, you can answer some questions to see how your financials are organized and get some videos on the back end of that results page where Pat and I walk through a good case study. So anyways, thanks everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.